after the election, we, we spun up a team both to investigate more of what we had reported to the FBI and what we could figure out related to that, as well as what was the source of kind of the fake news crisis on Facebook during the election. Uh, and so that report in April was was supposed to be kind of our best understanding of what was going on at that, at that time, because it became clear that, especially now that the Trump administration was in power, telling the FBI, telling the Department of Justice was not going to be like an acceptable thing for us to do. But then there was this real fight inside the company because, you know, people in the company, especially in the DC office, it's their job to keep the company on the good graces of the incredibly powerful executive branch of the United States. And so they did not want to be seen as getting involved. And so the report that came out is the outcome of the fight of how detailed can we be, how much attribution can we provide without being seen to insert ourselves into what at the time was a you know a very partisan, it's still very partisan, um, but a, a poorly understood area of like what the Russians had done in 2016. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast. February 13th, 2020. It's another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation. This week, my co-hosts, Evelyn Dweck and Kate Klonick, spoke with Alex Stamos, the director of the Stanford Internet Observatory. Prior to joining Stanford, Alex served as the chief security officer at Facebook, and before that, as the chief information security officer at Yahoo!, Evelyn, Kate, and Alex spoke about his experience at Facebook handling 2016 election interference. And they also discussed his work on cybersecurity, disinformation, and end-to-end encryption. Also, for the first time in Arbiters of Truth history, there are sound effects. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 507, Alex Stamos on the Hard Trade-Offs of the Internet. Alex, we've been wanting, trying to get you on the podcast for a while, and we, we would love to know a little bit about your background and how you started the Internet Observatory at Stanford. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I think you guys are doing a great job with this podcast, and I'm, I'm glad I was able to, to join it. So the Stanford Internet Observatory is a research program uh, here at the Freeman Spogli Institute. So this is a, effectively the closest Stanford has to a public policy school, and our goal is to understand misuse of the internet to come up with policy and technical mitigations to harm and to try to bend the curve in the future by educating the next generation, uh, especially of technologists, to make sure they don't make the same mistakes. So Alex, um, one of the ways in which I first encountered your work um, is really relevant to what we've been focusing on in our podcast series so far. Um, This was back when you were still at Facebook and you were the co-author on a 2017 Facebook report about information operations, which was really one of the first big and meaningful pieces of transparency and and engagement uh, around this issue from the platforms. And I'm just wondering, what was your thinking behind writing that report? And how do you view it now from this perspective, uh, three years down the track? Um, Have we made much progress in moving the ball forward? Or or what do you think of it now as as an academic looking at that report from the outside? Yeah, you know, it's funny because that report is probably going to be the most cited thing that I've ever written in my life. That was not the plan. Uh, but now it's like cited. It's never the multi- plan. It's never the plan. <laughs> it's cited multiple times in the Mueller report. Uh, and so, you know, it, it is a little funny that something that I was think I've linked cited to from the Facebook newsroom, <laughs> you cited it. Great. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And so looking back, if I knew that that was the most important thing that I would ever write, I would definitely have done some things differently. You would have used the Oxford comma. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. It, not not my biggest concern with yes, it. Yes, I, I know. So I, I, I think the report is an interesting artifact. Uh, 
like as an academic, if I want to take a step back, there is a really big picture question that we're dealing with right now. Like a lot of these little fights that are happening around, you know, online ads, around disinformation, around encryption are really part of one big fight, which is what is the relationship between government, individuals, and the tech platforms that carry so much of our speech now? And the traditional position of tech companies when it comes to geopolitics of actual conflict between states has been that there is a handful of really of the large companies that have had dedicated threat intelligence teams. That's generally what we call them. Often those are people who come from Western governments, intelligence communities. So my team had folks from NSA, CIA, FBI, GCHQ and the like. Um, the head of Google's team, I believe, is ex-Australian Signals direct Directorate. Uh, so a little five eyes shout out for you there, Evelyn. Um, Aussie, Aussie, and, Aussie, oi, oi, oi. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so we, ha we have these threat intelligence teams. And this has been for a while that these teams have existed. A lot of this came out of the 2009 attacks by the Chinese People Liberation Army against Google and 35 other companies, that that's when Silicon Valley started really paying attention to government activity. But these teams until recently, their goal was to study the misuse of their platforms by governments, look for bad behavior, and then report it to governments, generally Western governments with whom they had good relationships, and then let those governments handle the outcomes. Um, and the closest they would get to talking about this publicly would be notification of individuals. Uh, and so, for example, if you get malware from the Russians uh, as part of a campaign, Google will notify you. At Facebook before the 2016 election, actually in 2015, this actually happened a lot, but one of the cases I can talk about because somebody leaked it to Nicole Perlroth is that we at Facebook detected a big campaign by the uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps of Iran uh, against the U.S. State Department. Uh, and they were doing this on multiple platforms, but we detected it on Facebook. We let the State Department know. Uh, we notified the individuals who were being targeted. Um, and then the FBI and the State Department took care of it. And so that was kind of like the normal thing going into the 2016 election of how we, we acted. And we had on our Facebook team, we had people who were dedicated to looking at Russian actors, specifically APT 28 and 29, 28 is the one that's related to GRU. And we saw activity by accounts that we had tied to the GRU earlier via their activity against the World Anti-Doping Agency and some stuff in the Ukraine. And we then uh, saw that activity. It was related to attacking the DCCC and D individuals in the DNC. And we notified the FBI. And that was kind of the end of it. The goal was, you know, we've done our job. We've shut down the bad activity. We've told the FBI. Now we know retroactively, that the FBI did not come out and publicly talk about that before the election. Or if they did, it was kind of buried in some of these DNI reports that were really, really broad. Uh, and they didn't do proper notification of the people who were being targeted. Now, the actual hacking against the DNC did not happen on Facebook. Most of it happened on Google or against their direct servers at the DNC. And so that activity happens. And then after the election, we, we spun up a team both to investigate more of what we had reported to the FBI and what we could figure out related to that, as well as what was the source of kind of the fake news crisis on Facebook during the election. Uh, and so that report in April was was supposed to be kind of our best understanding of what was going on at that, at that time, because it became clear that, especially now that the Trump administration was in power, telling the FBI, telling the Department of Justice was not going to be like an acceptable thing for us to do. But then there was this real fight inside the company because, you know, people in the company, especially in the DC office, it's their job to 
keep the company on the good graces of the incredibly powerful executive branch of the United States. Uh, and so they did not want to be seen as getting involved. And so the report that came out is the outcome of the fight of how detailed can we be, how much attribution can we provide without being seen to insert ourselves into what at the time was a you know a very partisan, it's still very partisan, um, but a, a poorly understood area of like what the Russians had done in 2016. Something that that highlights that I've found really fascinating in this area is this, this kind of bifurcation of the conversation where you have the conversation about content moderation generally, which is very like free speech focused, human rights focused. And then you have this conversation around disinformation operations, uh, which is at its core political speech. Uh, but that discourse is very militarized, you know, intelligence operations and that kind of thing. Um, and I, I guess what you're saying is that's actually really reflected in a structural separation within the companies as well. Is that would you say that's accurate? Oh, that's absolutely accurate. Yeah. So, you know, I, I had a threat intel team, a counterterrorism investigations team, a, you know, child safety team, a fraud team. These were all teams that are focused on organized adversarial action, right? In some cases, in many cases, breaking the law, but in the case of some of the threat intel stuff, perhaps pushing along the law and, and, and or, or not illegal in the United States. But it was all adversarial, whereas the general content discussions, that is handled by a content policy team that's run by Monica Bickert, both at that time and still now. And those are generally, you know, my folks were technologists, ex-FBI agents, NSA analysts. She has a lot of lawyers and, you know, uh, First Amendment experts and people who understand speech rights around the world. And so it's like a, a very different, they come at it of from a norm, you know, what are norms, what are the laws? what is appropriate for people, we come at it from a organizational. That The other difference is we were looking for group, small groups of people who are having outsized influence, whereas most of the content policy decisions are not made with that in mind. They're made in like, what decision can we make that can actually be applied across millions or perhaps billions of people? Yeah, so this is great. I kind of wanted to, to talk about this because one of the ways that I've thought, and I, the it, this comes from a Jack Balkan idea. I think you've probably even heard me say this before, but the, the free speech triangle, but it can also be the free speech and the privacy triangle. Mm -hmm. And it's the idea of the world used to be a story of a dyadic story, a story of governments and citizens. And the tension there was between governments censoring citizens or infringing on citizens' privacy. That was the primary concern. And citizens pushed back with voice acts of loyalty democracy. And in, in there somewhere is the journalism playing an intermediary role in civil mm -hmm. society. Uh, and then the like online platforms, tech companies really exploded this idea and made it so that now you have a third like a third node and citizens can route around the problem of censorship they can take their privacy back via the platforms the other side of that that's like the great wild wild west story of the internet so i kind of wanted to talk about that where do you see that conversation moving? You've been hosting all of these end-to-end -end encryption conference uh, workshops. You've done two. I've been at both of them. They've been amazing conversations. Can we just kind of have a talk about maybe how platforms and dis and misinformation are moving away from like the, what we typically have been thinking about on the platforms of these open platforms to things like end-to-end -end encryption and messaging and how have those proliferate misinformation, disinformation in a totally new way? Yeah, absolutely. So I, as you alluded to, one of the areas of research for our observatory has been the impact of end-to-end -end encryption on a bunch of these debates, and especially a focus on what kinds of things can we do to mitigate some of the harms that for which we have some solution right now 
and those solutions are no longer relevant in an encrypted world. And I think you're totally right in that a lot of these arguments are based upon kind of a, a total reshuffling of power, right? The, the fact that now there is a mechanism that allow people to get around the gatekeepers. Um, and I'm not the first person to point out that, you know, perhaps some of the media anger on some of these things is related to the loss of power, that they no longer control what is the national conversation, that they no longer determine what is the Overton window of political discussion, that perhaps it has something to do with uh, the fact that New York Times, it is more notable when they get CDA 230 correct than when they get it wrong. Unfortunately, and the, just there, I think we can. Where's the womp womp button? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know, there you go. CDA two thirty <laughs> being the Communications Decency Act provision that protects a lot of these platforms from liability for a range of right things. Right, right. It, 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 yes, and the fact that it is the law that is critical for these companies to exist that gets blamed by the media when what the media is really arguing with is the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. Right, and so I think that is. You know, is a big part of the discussion. The way encryption changes this is it it rolls things back a little bit. So like one of the ways I think that these companies have been disruptive is they have put in the place of individuals a power that really only started existing in the 20th century and then was only in the hands of governments and big corporations, right? Absolutely. Like, you know, for most of human history, you can only talk to the people who can hear your voice, right? For, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and then we have the the written word, but it's written manually. And so you end up with, you know, like at least in the West, most knowledge under the control of the Christian church. And then after the Great Schism, the, the Catholic and Orthodox churches deciding what is what is knowledge or what is allowed to, to be kept. The invention of movable type means that you can communicate with thousands of people, but you have to be rich enough to own a printing press or to be able to borrow one, right? So a small number of people are able to speak to a much larger audience. And that leads to hundreds of years of war in Europe, right? Yep. Um, as also wonderful, incredible advances in, in Western society. And then in the 20th century, we end up with radio and television, which allow you to reach millions of people instead of thousands or tens of thousands. But that could only, because of the capital investment, those had to belong to corporations. They were easily controlled by governments and did not really provide any freedom. And the internet has done and social media companies specifically is given that kind of amplification power to individuals. And, and that seems to be that from a design perspective, a number of companies, most specifically Facebook in the words, you know, as expressed by Mark Zuckerberg, uh, in a big post he did last year, but then also his kind of famously panned speech is, you know, Facebook has made this intentional decision to move to a a system where people have smaller amplification and they have more privacy when they do so. And I think that's going to change some things. You know, there are certain kinds of online abuses where the harm scales up with the amplification, right? So hate speech is an example of that. Misinformation, disinformation is an example of that. You know, hoaxes like we're seeing right now with the, the coronavirus uh, or all the anti-vax stuff, the harm is based upon amplification. So it is quite possible in a future where amplification is harder, some of those harms aren't as big. Now, the, the difficult counterexample is WhatsApp, right? WhatsApp only allows you to amplify a message to a couple hundred people at a time. And if you look at what happened in the Indian election, especially and as well as in places like Sri Lanka, you still have disinformation, you still have ethnic violence driven by incitement. And it just has a very different form in that you have to get people to amplify it on your behalf. But uh, in places like that, you know, powerful entities such as the BJP in India have figured out how to do it. So it is not a magical solution by making it smaller to get rid of disinformation. And the movement to in protecting these people's privacy does take away a lot of tools for sure. Okay. So awesome. That's 
fantastically big picture and what that yeah. uh, whirlwind tour through history from the age of the printing press <laughs> till now uh, makes clear is that there's lots of things uh, in this picture. We've got speech, privacy, and with this sort of fundamental readjustment uh, about finding the, the locus of power uh, and constraining it. So lest people think that it's hopelessly theoretical and big picture, let's talk about right. a, a, an example this week of how we're still trying to navigate that and, and what it looks like for lawmakers. So uh, there's been a proposal that's come out called the Earnet Act, which I love this country's um, propensity to, to ha- come up with fantastic acronyms for things. Um, so you, could, uh, you don't do that in Australia? No, not, not a thing. Um, so eliminating abusive and rampant neglect of interactive technologies act and it rolls off the tongue yes exactly <laughs> so it's about the the provision that we were just talking about section 230 which provides immunity for a lot of these platforms uh, and it's ostensibly targeting their actions around child sexual abuse material um, which is one of the right. things that you mentioned as well which is often called CSAM. CSAM. Which is the term uh, that we use in the industry to talk about what most people call child pornography, which right. most activists don't like the use of the term pornography for a number of reasons. Yes. So it's implicating all these things that we're talking about, speech, and somehow encryption and privacy has, has been rolled up in all of this. Maybe you could give us an overview of um, what you think of it and, and your reaction and, and what lawmakers are trying to do there. Right. So I'll try not to turn this one into a Tom Friedman book. I apologize uh, for the historical. The that, wasn't a, that wasn't a jab at you. I'm sorry. It was important and informative. Like, this is, I've only been at Stanford for like a year and four months. Imagine how pompous I'll be in five years. <laughs> this is the effect this place has had on me so far. We'll do a follow up. Yeah. I'm here for it. Yeah. Um, so from the annals of difficult transitions to go from that to uh, talking about how CSAM is handled. So uh, as Kate said, CSAM stands for child sexual abuse material. That is the, what, what we call, what people generally call child pornography pictures of children generally nude or of children being abused or, or, or images and video. So the term material encompasses a, a variety of different formats. And obviously one of the more horrible things that happens online, the, existing process around this is actually an example of one of the areas in which the tech companies and the government are the most aggressive and the best at working together to stop a kind of abuse, right? So CSAM is effectively the pinnacle of all anti-abuse work on the internet. And that uh, there is a coalition of tech companies that surrounds in the United States an organization called NICMIC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which handles a number of issues around child safety, but is also by congressional charter the uh, coordinating body for these issues. And uh, there was a technology that was invented at Microsoft called PhotoDNA, uh, which is a, a mechanism to create a short mathematical fingerprint of an image. And uh, the benefit of that is that you can create a list of, for all of the photos that we know of of CSAM that exist and are being traded, there are these lists, and they're called hash sets, uh, and there's these lists of all of these fingerprints. And so you can check images to see if they're on there without seeing the images themselves. And so- uh, With remarkable accuracy. With, yeah, pretty good, yeah, pretty good accuracy. When these companies find them, find images, they are legally required to report them to NCMEC. Now, they're not legally required to look, which I think we'll get into uh, as being an important legal thing, right? So it is voluntary for companies to look. Um, and you will you end up finding that the companies have very different policies here. Um, and so there's actually a, a very good New York Times series on this 
starting last year, uh, where they revealed some of these numbers for the first time out of the 18 million reports. And so what a report is, is actually quite complicated for Nick Mick. It can include multiple images and multiple people, but out of 18 million reports, something like 15 million of them come from Facebook alone. Uh, Apple had 53, right? And so that's an example of Facebook is looking automatically, Apple is not, and is only reporting cases where I don't, well, I don't know how they're becoming aware of it. I'm just going to really brief that there is this moment in the Liebrook testimony where, did you remember this? Yes. Where they really went at Zuckerberg for, for this number that you just mentioned. And it was so disingenuous because it was about who was doing the, like about the fact that they were doing the hard work of checking yes. and building that in. And then like Apple was not. And so that's why Apple doesn't have any reports because right. and so it's you know anyways right. it was just it's not a very... because iphone users are angels yes it's because they're not, apple's not looking yes and you know it turns out google dropbox they look when you share folders but they don't look just when you do upload so there's there's real differences in how the industry deploys this and you're right like the senate got it totally wrong you know if everybody was looking the denominator 18 million would probably be 150 200 million and then Facebook would be 15 million of 200 million instead of 15 of 18. It's just because people aren't looking. I mean, the truth is, is that I don't think Facebook is actually the most prevalent platform for CSAM because it's not a platform that's generally used to do automatic photo sharing, right? So people don't upload their entire photo history to Facebook and then share it with other people. That is something that you're much more likely to see out of Google Drive, Dropbox, Box. Apple iCloud uh, and other platforms that are specifically built for photo sharing. Okay, Alex, so this sounds like really important work. Um, yes. And if encryption is going to stop this, uh, I'm very upset about that. And the Earn It Act is going to stop uh, encryption from preventing this really important work. What's wrong with that argument? Well, there's a couple of things. So, I mean, the funny thing is Earn an Act, it doesn't really specifically talk about encryption. It just says that you don't get that CDA 230 protection unless you can comply with best practices as determined at a future date by a panel. The panel could be overridden by the AG. So there's a bunch of kind of, uh, my understanding is there's a bunch of administrative law problems with all of this that the two of you are much more qualified to talk about. Um, from my perspective, the problems are one, this entire system where companies go out and automatically find child pornography, give it to Nick Mick, Nick Mick gives it to cops. The cops arrest people, put them in jail. That entire system has been fought over for years and is resting on this extremely tenuous interpretation that makes this compatible with the Fourth Amendment, right? Like Facebook does not go get a search warrant when it goes and looks at your photos. And so when those photos are then reported, you know, a number of defendants have made the argument that uh, Facebook or Yahoo uh, famously, um, you know, when I was at Yahoo, we had a case that is now being appealed and there are multiple people appealing this big child exploitation case that we worked on who are making this argument, saying that you know, Yahoo was an agent of the state uh, and therefore should have had a search warrant. And so first off, this bill might just completely destroy the existing system that exists to stop CSAM trading, which is clearly insane that like this is, you know, we've, it's taken years to get to this point. And yes, most companies don't do it, but there is a a direct, you know, if you look at the curve, it is getting better. There are rumors that Apple might start doing it now after the New York Times story. They have it officially confirmed, but I've heard those rumors. Certainly Google and Dropbox and others have, have looked at what their, their standards are. And so we're going the right direction. It's crazy that if we're going the right direction that all of a sudden they're just going to wipe out the whole thing. Um, the second is effectively then they're also outlawing all of end and encryption. And, you know, it's very disingenuous for people who have talked about privacy you know, and have complained about the tech industry's relationship with privacy, which is obviously very problematic, to take away one of the only 
real privacy benefits tech companies have given us in the last couple of years, which is end-to-end encryption on, on widely used products. Um, and I, I just think that's not good for individual privacy. It's not good for the competitiveness of the US tech industry because people want these features. They will get them from somebody else if they don't get them from us. So uh, Evelyn, what are your thoughts on the Earn It Act? I haven't looked at it really closely. It just strikes me that one of the things that is that this act is indicative of that happens a lot in this conversation is there are so many things going on. Uh, there are so many problems with platforms and in the tech space at the moment. Um, we've got a lot of inf- uh, problems around uh, content moderation, around disinformation, around encryption and relationship with law enforcement. And the attempt to try and deal with them together creates a lot of problematic uh, issues where you're not actually evaluating the, the trade-offs correctly. So the, the encryption conversation is an extremely important conversation. Um, it doesn't necessarily relate perfectly or, or, or very closely with the conversation around what protection platforms should have for the public speech that they host and that they moderate. And Alex, that's something that you've written and, and talked about a lot as well, the sort of the trade-offs that we have to make in this space, how we're not going to be able to uh, optimize for everything equally. And I wonder if maybe you could talk a little bit about that and how we how we have that conversation. How do we choose what trade-offs to make? Yeah, if there's a overall theme in the policy work that I'm trying to do here, it's to try to get policymakers to wrestle with the the different equities and the fact that you can't have it all. I, I think the the public debate is just really not very well educated by trade-offs. And, and you don't have that in other areas, right? Like, you know, generally people understand if you lower taxes, then that will probably increase the deficit, right? Uh, and so you have to lower spending if you, if you want to. You know, obviously there's some crazies who think you can tax cut your way into prosperity. But, uh, you know, as we've demonstrated now with our trillion dollar deficit, uh, maybe that's not been very well proven. But like, <laughs> at least policymakers know that, right? And when there's a tax cut bill on the table, there's 500 position papers from every economic study group, every lobbyists, everybody. But when it comes to tech issues, there's very little discussion of these trade-offs because the people who have had to implement the trade-offs very rarely have a voice in the discussion. Um, and you're you're totally right on this one. There's a very hard privacy safety trade-off here that if you put people's content out of the reach of the companies, which is undoubtedly a privacy benefit. It also means those companies can no longer look at that content and be at all responsible for it. Um, That doesn't mean there's nothing they can do. And so that's really the focus of our workshops is I do believe that there are options here other than banning encryption, other than building back doors. But to figure out which of those options you want to use, you have to be much more careful about talking about which specific abuses you care about and then targeting those specific abuses. There's there's no good all-in-one solution of into it. But we can do better. Unfortunately, most technologists don't want to talk about that because the it, it feels a little bit, if you give an inch on encryption, that uh, the anti-encryption forces will take a mile. I, I disagree with that position, but I understand why some of my, my friends are in that place. Yeah, I mean, that you see that. I, I think you see that in speech. That's a huge conversation with speech. And you see that with privacy absolutists as well. I mean, so mm-hmm. all of these things, I think that I kind of want to highlight something that you said, which I think is there's this idea that there are these trade-offs and you said everyone understands the trade-offs for taxes and there's kind of all of these very sophisticated ways to talk about it and we just don't have that type of language yet around this and we don't have the norms for how to understand what's going on. Not only do people not understand and have a good sense of the technology, but they've built their lives on 
right? They, they take the technology in and have no idea how it, what's making it work or making it go. Um, and so they don't know how to properly regulate it. But they're slowly, I think, slowly becoming a conversation around this. And it's starting in academia. Even five years ago, content moderation was not a thing that people understood what that was. I had yeah. to always give a talk of being like, hey, I'm working on this crazy thing in which Facebook takes down things that you post on it. Uh, and uh, people had no idea that was happening. So I think that this is, it is, these workshops, these conversations are getting there. Don't you love it when you're on some kind of topic and it turns out to be one of the most important topics? And uh, Yeah, it's actually, <laughs> yeah. I think Evelyn has heard my, some of my crazy origin stories of being, doing my PhD in Yale and telling people that this is what I wanted to do. And People being like, that's not a thing. You yeah. can't do that. <laughs> so, this is what it feels like in the security community overall is that people in information security have been screaming about insecurity, privacy issues, encryption. Um, and we're just seen as like these little nerds that got together in the desert and, you know, they'd write lifestyle pieces. And now all of a sudden people are paying attention and we don't know what to do with it. Yeah. It's like Burning Man. It's yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, the Tech Lash at least is a full employment program for all of us. So no longer in the desert, uh, <laughs> exactly. just in, rapidly at our computer typing away. Uh, but there is this fascinating thing, though. Like, so, so you, you know, Evelyn, you just pulled back and you're like, you know, we're talking about encryption, but let's talk about the platforms. But when it comes to mis and disinformation, election security, all of this type of stuff, encryption is where the conversation is. Yeah. Right. And then when you talk about mis and disinformation, amplification is where the conversation is. And they are interrelated because there's different types of things happening and they have these different they have different harms and they have different solutions and there is at least in my estimation right now just really very blunt tools for trying to address what is like which which are what I think of just these incredibly fine-grained problems that you're trying to to thread these this needle for just to mix all my metaphors together, uh, like trying to thread this needle of, of managing civil rights and privacy and speech and technology, and then the feasibility of all these things and bad actors yeah. blowing it all up. Right. The, the adversarial part, I think, is one of the differences you have versus other areas of public policy, right? We see this in traditional information security where there have been rounds and rounds of politicians who will say things like, well, why don't we just have a building code? You know, we... we Buildings used to fall down all the time, and they don't do it anymore, at least in, in rich countries, because we have building codes that you have to live up to. Um, but the difference is, is when you're building a bridge or you're building a skyscraper, your enemies are generally natural causes, right? It's gravity, it's fire, it's things that you understand. When you're talking about adversarial action, you can't use a building code, because really what you're doing is you're playing chess. Um, and you can't become the world's best chess player just by reading books, you have to actually do it. Um, and I think that's one of the differences uh, in this conversation is that, you know, content moderation to a neutral, this is how people speak, is hard enough in a world where every single decision you make will have an instant reaction by people who are sometimes professionally paid to beat your system. It is much, much harder. And I think that's one of the other things that's not very well understood here. And the other really big difference with building codes is we're okay with the government saying, most of us are okay with the government saying, here is exactly, I mean, I know nothing about building codes, but here's exactly the kind of cement that you need to have. And here's the, you know, foundations that you need to have. We're not necessarily okay with the government really explicitly specifying, this is the kind of speech that is acceptable. This is the kind of coordination that is acceptable on a public platform. And, um, and this is the kind that's not. And I guess that gets something that I was interested to ask you about. Um, a lot of these conversations around what Facebook calls uh, coordination 
coordinated inauthentic behavior. Um, I don't know if that's one of one of your phrases or where that comes from. Uh, great euphemism. It is. So, I mean, I was part of naming that. It, it used to be coordinated inauthentic activity, but that spells CIA. Yeah. Uh, and so we thought we wouldn't play too much into the. Uh, Wait, where's so somebody that? figured we need out a behavior for that? <laughs> yes, I, I was part of putting that policy together. Well, thank you for giving us this phrase that now you know um, I get to to work with every day. So uh, that's interesting because. Um, so much of the conversation around CIB focuses on the behavior part. You know, these platforms yes. talk a lot about the fact that we are regulating behavior. We are taking down behavior, not content. We're taking it down because of the way that these pages work together uh, rather than what it is that what they say. And I'm really interested into the extent to which that's actually possible or true. Uh, and yeah. maybe you can sort of unpack for me how do you differentiate uh, between the two when you're in conducting an investigation? Right. That's a great question. So the, the reason we had to create that policy in 2017 was to address one of the kind of fundamental policy failings of Facebook going into the 2016 election. So some of the things, I mean, Facebook made lots of mistakes. One, we didn't have like a disinformation focus from a threat intel perspective, right? So our threat intelligence team was super focused on malware, account takeovers, normal, you know, phishing, normal cyber activity. We were not looking for disinformation. Uh, second problem was we were not properly enforcing identity. So Facebook had run into a number of controversies around what people called the real name policy. It was called the authentic identity policy inside of Facebook, causing trouble for folks, uh, especially uh, you know people kind of who were already treated uh, as on the fringes of society and aren't treated that well. We're, we're not having good interactions with Facebook's policies. Uh, the outcome of that controversy was that Facebook effectively stopped enforcing authenticity policies. And so it was very, very easy to create fake accounts in 2016 as long as you weren't pretending to be a specific celebrity or, or something like that. Um, and then one of the, the third kind of big picture problem was that the all of the content policies on Facebook at the time were about the individual pieces of content themselves, right? And so, you know, the the kind of standard way of thinking of anything was you've, you've got, you know, this post, this video, this image, that item goes into a queue, a computer looks to see how likely it is violating, and then a human being starts to take them off the top of the queue and decides, is this a violating piece of content or not, right? Um, in fact, the key tool used was called the single review tool. It was a tool that only let you see that one specific piece of content without any context. That's fine for a piece of hate speech, um, you know, for her bullying harassment, for nudity, for a copyright violation, because those are all things that are inherent in the content itself. The problem posed by organized disinformation is that the individual pieces of content are often not violating of policy, right? So it is okay to be a guy in Wyoming who posts a, I don't like Hillary because of her immigration policy post, right? What's not okay is if that guy in Wyoming is actually one of a hundred fake accounts that have been created by Svetlana, you know, it, it's not Bob, it's actually Svetlana in St. Petersburg working for the Internet Research Agency, and it's part of a coordinated campaign. So the that policy was created to catch the fact, it we effectively, we kind of called it our RICO statute uh, internally, hmm. of the idea that like you could Troublesome. Even if, well, well, right. So that Rico. The, actually, I got another I, I would, another excellent I, acronym. Right. Effectively, like I mean, we we saw this as a, a rule that even if one piece of content wasn't bad, you could say all of your activity is bad. So you know, you can get Al Capone's restaurant, you know, that he's using to launder his money, even if the restaurant itself is legal. Right. That that was kind of the idea. Um, and so that that focus on behavior 
really came out of the Russia experience in 2016, where the, they knew what our content policies are. So they were creating content that would not violate the policies. They went right up to the edge, but they generally would not go over the edge. And they also understood that nobody was looking to see whether they are all working together. And so that's specifically for that. I, I think the problem with that policy is, you know, just like all of these policies, it's it was directly written for one specific threat actor in one specific election. That is not necessarily the way that political disinformation is going to be pushed on the platform now. So while it needs to continue to exist, it is no longer sufficient to exist by itself. It's always amazes me how how quickly the bad actors morph and uh, how hard it is to chase them. Yeah. Well, for example, our Africa our report on disinformation in Africa. We're not sure if this group is the Internet Research Agency, but we can tie it to Evgeny Prigozhin, who is the owner of the IRA. So they are certainly part of the same family, the people who are acting in Africa. And instead of having several hundred people in St. Petersburg do it, what they're doing is they're hiring strainers in country or in neighboring countries, which is going to be much more difficult to detect from a technical perspective when they have people in Egypt, in Sudan, in Madagascar, who are reporting back to Russia, and in some cases still making dumb mistakes. So one of the people in one of these networks uh, posted photos on his Instagram of his visit to Moscow. And so there's there's still some OPSEC mistakes being made, uh, but they are getting much better in, in creating patterns that are gonna be m more difficult to detect. So we've run head on into another trade-off then, because in this area, yeah. there's constant cries for more transparency around what platforms are doing to take down this political speech. Uh, but what you're saying is, if you give too much transparency, that just teaches the bad actors what to do and how to get around these policies, where exactly the line is so that they can walk right up to it. I'm probably more in the first camp. To me, it, it concerns me how little transparency there is around uh, what, what's happening in this space. But you've been on the other side of it, and you're the one that's working uh, on these policies and detecting these threats. So do you think that there is possibility for more transparency, or would that just create the, the make the problem worse? I mean, I think there is a trade-off, but I am in the more transparency bucket, too. I, I, I feel like these companies are acting in a pseudo-governmental manner. The only way we can have any confidence in their decisions is if we understand a, how those decisions are made, B, what the decisions are, um, and C, if they create precedent that has to be enforced in the future, right? Like, I think that is an unfortunate thing inside the companies is that, I think this is less of a problem at Facebook. I saw a lot of this at YouTube where they keep on doing these things where they will decide not to take a, a YouTube video down, then they get a lot of criticism, they take it down, then they put it back up, then they put it back up and demonetize it. Like, all they're doing is telling everybody, like, you should scream at us and we will do what is what is advantageous to your political group if you can scream the most, right? Like, that is a that is a trap that, that you do not want to walk into. And I think the only way out of that trap is transparency. Also, as an academic who has a team who's trying to study this stuff, we need a lot more transparency with the companies, if not totally public transparency, mechanisms by which legitimate researchers under reasonable privacy controls can get access to data. And that's actually been something that's going directly the wrong way because one of the equities here is between data protection and understanding the bad things that are happening and the the legal needle is all the way on the data protection side. Uh, and so GDPR does not create uh, explicit calls out for academic research. I am holding in my hand a 30-page report called A Preliminary Opinion on Data Protection and Scientific Research by the European Data Protection Supervisor. And while uh, this group in Brussels believes that you can do the kind of research we want to do under GDPR, they basically say, well, it's still up to every state data protection officer, right? Which is a model that is not going to work. Uh, 
you know, no American company is going to let academic research happen if one DPC who's running for higher office is going to utilize it as a way to to slam that that big bad American company. And so this is one of the areas where I think we actually need legal action to both create safe harbors within existing data protection laws, and then also to encourage the companies to work with responsible researchers, because otherwise, the next time this happens, we're, we're not going to know anything that, that's going on. So this is something I, to piggyback on this question, excellent question from Evelyn, which is that for a long time, um, the content moderation policies at Facebook were mostly secret the internal rules and the actual mechanisms. And the reason for that, I was always told by the company and by, by all companies who who, do, who did this and had their content moderation policies was be specifically to stop bad actors from manipulating the rules. Um, once you have rules in place, um, you can, and you're transparent about them, you know how to break them. This is exactly kind of the trade-off that Evelyn just said. Um, but I kind of just wanted you said you did this great moment of kind of this is the one area where there should be legal action. And I wanted to take that to pivot it to what do you think is the best um, kind of disinformation and misinformation options that could come from government right now? Yeah. I, so to be clear, there is no magic bullet here, right? right. Um, you know, we were talking about you know child abuse material earlier and, and talking about CSAM is clarifying because it is a type of abuse for which there's no disagreement as to the actual, you know, the fundamental content, right? Even then, there are really difficult privacy trade-offs. In this case, we're talking about, you know, literally one person's misinformation is another person's political speech. And I don't have to tell the two of you actual legal scholars about the hundreds and hundreds of years of arguments um, over what is legitimate political speech, right? Uh, which the companies do not want to get into. So I, I, just first off, I don't think there's any good silver bullet. Here. Well, do you think, and something I tell people a lot is not focusing on the speech and the intent of the speech, but focusing on the behavior. Yeah. And that's, I think, what you were just kind of saying, and that's what kind of what, why I brought it up. Yeah. It, so from my perspective, when it comes to misinformation, the benefit we have in fighting it is that it is tied to amplification, how effective it is, right? And so we should look at the different parts of these platforms, and we should have different responses for the parts of the platforms that have lots of amplification. And the top of that for me is advertising. Advertising allows you to trade money for amplification. No other part of the platforms generally allow that. Uh, it also allows you to put content in front of people who did not ask to see it. I think we talk a lot about people's free speech rights. We talk less about their kind of free association rights that, you know, when you talk about like Alex Jones is kind of an extreme, there's the freedom of Alex Jones to have speech, but there's also the, the question of people who intentionally go seek him out, should they be able to get to his content, right? And when balancing that, looking at advertising, that allows you to put stuff in front of people who did not ask to see it. And so I think they, you have absolutely the least free expression and free association rights when it comes to advertising. So that's where I'd start with legislation, um, is around the, uh, again, not the content of the ads, uh, but around what you're allowed to do with advertising. And what I've been calling for since leaving Facebook, like right afterwards, I, I wrote something and gave some interviews, um, is I think for a broad set of what we define as political speech, you know, including issue ads in the United States, that we should have reasonable uh, limitations on how targeted those advertisements can be. And because I think one th one of the differences between online ads and say a newspaper ad or a television ad is the ability to automatically generate hundreds of thousands of these ads and then to use programmatic tools to test them. And that is not a good direction to go. It also incentivizes political campaigns and PACs and such to violate our privacy and to buy all this data or to steal this data on us. Uh, and so that's where I would start is on the advertising. I want to 
because you're going in this direction anyways, and I just kind of really going to push you there. Um, the political ads controversy, yeah, um, at the at the um, at the platforms that kind of stirred up in October, November. There is an interesting First Amendment freedom of expression kind of element to to that in the sense that uh, one of the least protected areas of speech is commercial speech, but one of the most protected areas of speech is political speech. What were your takes about how the media understood the policy, what the narrative got to be around it, and whether or not the companies created the right um, solution at the end of the day? I feel like they just waited out the, the media cycle. Well, there's, I mean, I think there's three different solutions that have come out of it. So, you know, you're right. This all started with like a Trump video ad mm-hmm. that didn't only play online. To be fair, you know, Dylan Byers from NBC pointed out that this ad also played on Fox News, of course, but CNN, MSNBC, and a bunch of local affiliates. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the, I didn't really understand this until this controversy, one of the interesting holdovers of political speech at law is that local TV affiliates had to carry Trump's ad. They had no choice but to carry it under the law. So like it, it is, first off, I think it is not a simple issue. People play it as a simple moralistic issue. And I this is one of the things that really drives me about the, the media treatment of tech right now is they are directionally right in some of these areas, but they make it like a simple, we're the good guys, you're the bad guys, moral argument. I couldn't agree And the agree truth more. is it's, it's not that simple. And so there's this controversy of this ad that Facebook carried. And and what's happened is the three big companies have ended up in three totally different places. So Twitter decided not to carry political ads at all. I think that's a huge mistake, right? Because I, I think that actually really benefits incumbents and rich interests. Because if you're not carrying issue ads, then you seed the field to people who have money for television and newspaper ads. Yes. And not only that, but you like, but this is the thing that people don't realize, which is just that like, then you just have power and influence recreating itself from people that have tons of Twitter followers because you can't buy, you can't, if you can't buy a small ad, you can't ever be, you can't ever be the dog catcher candidate. Right. And you know, a lot of tech critics in the media played this as like a simple Trump versus Democrats. But like the truth was when Twitter announced that a bunch of democratic groups very quietly got very angry because they were all of a sudden being cut off, right? Like, you know, it is people who are challenging the current uh, powers that be that are going to want to raise funds online. They're going to want to reach their audiences online. Donald Trump can afford a Super Bowl ad. He's running a Super Bowl ad, right? Um, but uh, uh, lots of other people don't have that reach, and so they need the much more economically efficient platforms. Yeah, and that's something that I felt was so missing from the conversation was that there is, like, that Facebook has a huge, huge impact for being able to disseminate to large audiences for very little money, and so it's a, really a tool for for the little guy. Yeah. And the other thing that was not particular, that I thought was interesting about Dorsey's timing of the, that was underreported in the media but the timing of Dorsey's announcement that they were like as a kind of like, oh, Facebook's not going to take down political ads. We're going to take down political ads was that it came 12 hours before the Facebook earnings call. Yeah. And so that was like it was so motivated, but it was just like very clear that there was a business interest there. I this is I think people outside of Silicon Valley don't understand how many of these decisions are being driven by the fact that a bunch of these billionaires actually hate each other. Right. Like there's there's a bunch of stuff that happens in Silicon Valley that seems that it's hard to understand. And then once you realize that there's and to a certain extent, these are still boys with toys. It's almost all men. And it's a bunch of kind of posturing and 
that is actually behind a lot of the decisions that get made. It's such it's it's so weirdly true. And I'm yeah. just was never of this world until I spent the last nine months embedded at Facebook. And I'm not even on in the C-suite. I'm on the factory floor. Yeah. Uh, and I can you can still just being in this environment for a couple of months. You just start to see that starts to become evident. And it's bizarre. Um, yeah. Famously, Evan Spiegel dissing Facebook, saying that, like, uh, he's not worried, you know, comparing uh, Facebook to Snapchat as Yahoo was to Google uh, led to Mark Zuckerberg turning the entire canon of Instagram's product management against Snapchat, which did not work out well for them. So that sounds horrifying. Let's, <laughs> let's not have these boys with toys have so much power. Um, one response to that, one answer to that is let's re-decentralize the net. Um, we have centralized the net away from the original utopian vision of the internet where um, everyone, you know, had a voice and a platform. Uh, and instead now we've got these mega platforms that control so much of the world's speech. What do you think about the idea that that's gaining uh, traction in the last sort of few months about the idea of decentralization as a solution to this problem? So if you don't mind me going back real fast, I, I want to answer your question, which you asked, which was about the political ad controversy. So I was just saying, like, I don't think Twitter made the right move banning all political ads. I think Facebook decided to have no restrictions on political ads, uh, except like the, the restrictions that already existed that you have to be a U.S. citizen, you have to prove who you are, which I also think is not the right position, right? Like my kind of medium position would be, I think there should be limits on targeting. And then you can have a a disinformation standard, but you can apply it only to claims about opponents. I think that's what people are really worried about is lies about your opponent. So if Trump says Mexico is going to pay for the wall, that is part of democracy for us to decide whether that's true or not. If he says Joe Biden's about to be arrested, that's something he has to factually back up to run a Facebook ad. I think that would be reasonable. What's what's happened is this has been turned into a partisan issue when it really shouldn't be. Because the truth is, is, we don't know that Trump is actually going to be the best on Facebook ads this cycle. He was in 2016. But Mike Bloomberg seems to be building the most impressive online advertising capability in the history of man, right? And so, you know, a ton of my old Facebook friends have quietly changed their LinkedIn that they've left Facebook and not put their new employer in. Um, but I have heard through the grapevine that like he is buying up a huge amount of talent from Silicon Valley and has obviously effectively unlimited money uh, to spend on online ads. And so I, I don't think it actually should be a partisan issue. We should treat this as, you know, a nonpartisan one. Um, so to your second question uh, on decentralization, I think decentralization is like encryption. It is orthogonal to some of these arguments. It makes some things harder. Um, so you're right. Like if you decentralize these networks, then it takes away the decision-making power of the central authorities. And I think there are good reasons and arguments for that. But this is back to the equity discussion. If you decentralize, then you cannot have the control of speech that some people are calling for. And so in a decentralized world, just like with encryption, it is it becomes more chaotic, it becomes more freeform, um, you, you, you'll end up with very uneven enforcement. And I, I see Twitter's announcement that they're looking at decentralized models to be Dorsey's reaction to, to Zuckerberg encrypting, is that both of those guys are looking for an out, right? Mark sees the out as privacy because Facebook gets hit on privacy all the time. And so he's going to use privacy as the reason they're encrypting, which also then lets him out of the responsibility to do content moderation. Dorsey would love Twitter to be a distributed platform where Twitter no longer decides, you know, who, what is a Nazi? Yeah, I think that this is, uh, I wanted to hit the mystery button, like the, like the alien, like... 
It's, that's like the cons- it's all a conspiracy theory. Yes. X Files button. Um, but I think that that's right. The one thing I will say is that uh, fact checking boards do not seem to be the solution to any of this. Going at the epistemological question of this is just all types of wrong. And I think that that's I'm really, really hoping that that's a phase that goes away. So like uh, like the, the, that's a what you said about part of democracy is sussing out truth for yourself is yeah. is really I just think really where the conversation has to start going to right and, and people who call it is right to criticize the tech companies for for missing certain things when you say I want the tech companies to do X you should also say but the limit should be Y right and that's what you're not hearing enough of is there's no kind of theory of if you're going to protect me from this thing that I don't like, how is that slippery slope going to stop? And that's one of the things like on that scale of things that we have total agreement over, you've got CSAM on the total end where everybody agrees it's bad. And so it's really down to a privacy discussion, right? Um, For me, the other one that I think is really interesting is anti-vax, right? Mm. So I hate anti-vaxxers. I have three kids who go to Bay Area schools. Uh, The idea of my kids coming home with a disease from Little House on the Prairie (laughs) drives me insane in the 21st century. Uh, And it's a possibility we're running through. But those people like honestly believe those things. They are not part of some kind of coordinated, you know, there's probably foreign interference involved, but the vast majority of anti-vaxxers are posting under their real identities. I mean, the most important ones, RFK Jr., right? And we have to be really careful of saying, I want to wipe out anti-vax of deciding, well, what is the theory under which you're going to do that? That does not get applied to every other area of political or scientific disagreement. Yeah. So just really quickly on that, I gave the example the other day um, on Twitter about um, anti-vax versus astrology and Mm. how you could have, they are both things that people very strongly believe in. One is empirically false, yet you cannot solve it with looking at the empirics because you have to look at it by looking as we, to loop back to everything we've talked about, you have to talk about it by the harms that it creates and that drives where how you're going to change or make a policy for something. Right. Well, where I would see the anti-vax going, like let's say as a society we decide to silence anti-vaxxers, the next is global warming deniers, right? There's probably as much scientific evidence for anthropomorphic global warming as there is supporting the safety of vaccines. So to somebody who say that global warming is not man-made, is it the responsibility of these trillion dollar companies to silence them? I just find that very, very scary. Like what I agree with the position, I disagree with that power being used. And that's actually, to go back to our media criticism, you very rarely see people in the media utilizing, you know, calling for people on their side to be censored, right? It's always people they disagree with, uh, which is, you know, one of kind of the constants in, in this tech criticism is I want the tech companies to squash my enemies. And so, you know, I think we have to start to make that kind of discussion not considered acceptable, that if you have a theory of speech control, the theory of speech control should be fairly applied to your side as well. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Okay, so I'm going to try and land this plane now that has flown us everywhere from the, <laughs> the origin of the printing press to astrology. Alex, you wrote an op-ed from the future for Lawfare in September last year that was a apocalyptic, horrifying vision of the worst-case scenario for 2020 um, and disinformation and platforms' responses to that disinformation. I wonder if you could just give us sort of a brief picture of what that looks like, but also tell us, you know, it's now been nearly five, six months since then. Have we made any progress or are you still just as worried about that apocalyptic scenario playing out in the next few months? Yeah. So I I did mean for it to be, you know, 
the odds of that exact scenario playing out, I think, are are low. But any specific thing I talk about in it is totally realistic. You know, the the op ed was set in January of twenty twenty one, and what is normally the really boring acceptance of the electoral college vote by the Senate, which is uh, I got to read. I'm not a lawyer, but I got to read uh, Title Three of the U.S. Code, which has all this parts that obviously has never been actually tried out, right? Of how elections work. Yo, so there's all this kind of boring stuff that everybody ignores. That in a case where we really had a hack against the election, might turn into be real interesting political theater. And so kind of the point of the op-ed is that we shouldn't look at these problems separately. Like everybody talks about uh, election security, the security of local computer systems that belong to localities, disinformation on Facebook versus disinformation in the major media as different things. And our adversaries don't think that way. That is not how the Russians are looking at this. And the other thing I try to talk about is it's not how other adversaries are going to look. The idea that Russia is the only country that has this capability is just factually false. Again, the Iranians, the Chinese, probably a number of U.S. allies have this capability. And if they see that Russia is interfering in our elections and nothing happens to them and it it is to their detriment, say, for like, for example, the Chinese, then why would they stay out? Um, and so from their perspective, they're not just going to do one attack. They're going to tie it all together. And so an attack against the first against the registration systems uh, combined with the creation of disinformation accounts where you're inserting yourselves into the support base of different candidates. And then you attack the e-poll books on the day of to cause chaos in the voting. And then you attack the, the systems that are used to add up all of the results and to distribute these results. If you put this all together, you, you probably can't throw the election to somebody else. But what you can do is you can make the entire country feel like it was stolen from them. Right, that there all of a sudden all Americans would agree that it, this was stolen. Um, they just believe it was the other side was the bad guys. Um, and our adversaries don't really have to do that much work. All they have to do is kind of open the door a little bit of creating uncertainty in the results of the election, and then the DNC and RNC will fly all their lawyers in on private jets, who will take their crowbars and put it right into that crack door and will rip it right open. Um, and so that's my big fear. And I don't think things have gone that much better. Like, there's some smart people at the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency under DHS who are working on election security, but they have no power and no capability to fix the, the core problems at the state and local level. And from a disinformation perspective, the companies have re responded to with Russians in 2016. I don't think there's been a lot of thinking about what that might look like in 2020. Uh, and I expect that in the Democratic primary right now that a lot of the stuff that's being, you know, there's this whole kind of problem of Twitter creating all these divisions between people in, in the primary and, you know, the kind of never Bernie, never Warren, never Biden tags, Mayo Pete. I would not be shocked if a bunch of that's being driven by people who are trying to, to, to support Trump, maybe a foreign adversary. Great. So do you have a sound effect that's adequately sad enough to uh, capture the apocalyptic <laughs> scenario that you just outlined for us? Or are we out the other side and need a laugh track? Yeah, I feel like I, I don't have anything sad enough. So <laughs> I'll say is there's absolutely nothing wrong could happen in the U.S. election this year. Perfect. We'll yep. just pretend that that's true uh, so that we're not depressed. For all the people listening to this in their car, I don't want them to be too depressed. So, yes, things are fine. Go outside, play with your kids, get some sunshine. <laughs> Thanks so much. This is really great. Yeah, thank you both for having me. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Alex Stamos. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. 
Our audio engineer was Jacob Schultz, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare podcast on the podcasting app of your choice. And as always, thanks for listening.